I definitely improved a lot in consistency in LR and RC and just understanding that the LSAT is really good at punishing certain mistakes in your thinking or in your reading comprehension. And learning how the LSAT does that, I actually think it did improve my reasoning abilities too. I mean, it, it, it does kind of shape your brain a little bit. Hello and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with Seven Sage tutor Scott, who scored a 180 on his June 2021 LSAT. We speak about all three sections of the test from both his perspective as first a student and now a tutor. So without further ado, please enjoy. I have Seven Sage tutor Scott here with me. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Let's first talk about your LSAT. You got a 180 on your June 2021 test, and it only took you about nine weeks of studying. And that 180 was an improvement from a 168 diagnostic score. Congratulations on the 180. <laughs> Second, I think what everyone's dying to know is how did you even start with such a high diagnostic score of 168? I, f- I feel like for most people, that would be an amazing finishing point. But for you, that was actually the starting line. Yeah, so kind of my story on that is, so I'm I'm not your typical law school applicant. I think I would be considered non-traditional is the word on law school data or those various websites. But essentially, I'm a 37-year-old who has spent the last 10 years teaching in a classroom environment. Before that, I was a seminarian and a minister. And so over the course of that time, especially the last 10 years, I've spent a lot of time in the classroom teaching a lot of the sorts of things that are tested on the LSAT to students, whether that be in kind of formal writing classes or running a debate program or in at least for a couple of years there, actually teaching formal logic classes to 13, 14, and 15-year-olds. I didn't certainly go into that with the intention of preparing for the LSAT, but it certainly ended up, I think, being one of the big things that really helped me jumpstart my preparation. I guess when you saw some of those formal logic questions on logical reasoning, you're like, oh, this is like the exercises that I run with my students. No. And actually, since then, I've, I've actually taken some LSAT questions and I use them with my students because <laughs> they're, they're, they're actually, the stuff I have in my textbook aren't nearly as good as an LR section. So we, we actually, <laughs> I, I make that an exercise with my debate students. We do one of those at the start of every class, just having them break down the argument because it's just good practice. Are your debate students the same set of students as the ones that you teach formal logic to? Or are they? Yes. So, or some of them are. Uh, I would have taught them formal logic back when they were in sixth and seventh grade. And then now I teach them in, you know, ninth, 10th, 11th or 12th grade debaters. I see. So yeah, it's a private Christian school. So it's, you know, relatively small classes. It's 60 per graduating class and pretty much every teacher does multiple different things. So it is kind of cool that I actually get to see the same group of students from sixth grade all the way through 12th grade and watch how they kind of grow and develop. That's really kind of one of the joys of a place like this. Do they know you're secretly preparing them for the LSAT? Uh, <laughs> a couple of them actually know they're going to be lawyers. And so I've explicitly told them, yeah, I got this from the LSAT. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And by the way, if you find this hard, I really recommend that you get a course to prepare for this. <laughs> I can talk to me in a few years. I'll recommend some. And then I've actually sent a, I have a few students because you know, I've been teaching long enough that I, some of my very first students are actually law students now. And, wow. You know, pointed them toward resources and things like this over the years. So, yeah. Wow. Well, I definitely want to ask you more about your decision to change careers and pursue law school later. But let's first talk more about the LSAT. A lot of formal logic. And for debate, this is where the non-formal logic arguments, that's where the debate skills kind of thrive, like where you just have to kind of evaluate these assumptions that are not, it's not like, oh, you made a sufficiency necessity confusion, but rather just to assume that whatever the case may be, this proposal to build a new bridge runs through the cost-benefit analysis and comes out in favor building the bridge or something like that. Most of debate is recognizing flaws in your opponent's arguments. Hopefully, hopefully there aren't any flaws in your argument by the time you actually get to a debate round. But being able to not just recognize it over time, but instantaneously be able to see, oh, yes, hey, this is the area where they left a flaw and this is how we're going to win. And that's what makes or break a competitive debate team. And I actually came into a competitive debate with, you know, at the time, my very first debate tournament was the national tournament. We had two students that had made it that far. And so literally, I'm, I'm driving to Dallas for the national tournament. So I'm kind of thrust into that. And so I didn't kind of build up to a good program. I just kind of got dropped in the middle of a really great one, which was fantastic in terms of you know improving me as a thinker and improving me as a logician, but also meant that, yeah, it was critical that we be top notch at that. It's not just enough to be able to identify flaws. You have to be able to do it in a time debate round in that sort of competitive setting. So, so being able to identify the flaws, weaknesses generally in arguments. Exactly. And also having to do it fast. 
Sounds yes. sounds like sounds like you just described logical reasoning in a, in a nutshell. That's like basically well, exactly. what you need it, to do. Yeah. Well, and then I went and I actually decided, and we can talk about that later. But when I decided to go into law and realize, okay, so I'm going to have to take the LSAT. Well, what is this thing? And I sat down. The very first thing I see is, oh, well, two of the four sections is that I didn't realize that it had changed over the flex. But two of the four sections are, oh, I can do that. <laughs> I do that. I do that every day. That's Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I, I didn't realize how well I prepared I'd be for that. And then I got to logic games. And that's where I found the very opposite of that. <laughs> that was that that was really my struggle was RC and LR were comparatively easy for me. But logic games is just not like anything I had ever played around with. So you you've had the benefit of unwittingly preparing for, for this test for <laughs> many, many years. Like obviously students can take a course to prepare for the LSAT. We offer courses for exactly that reason. But like if students are in college, what kind of, I don't know, do you feel like should they join a debate team to prepare for this? Should they take some formal logic classes? What kind of stuff can they do to both be better prepared for the LSAT, but also to just kind of have a better sense of what argumentation is and see the broader applications of having that skill set? I mean, obviously, I think a competitive debate team is being part of that is definitely going to to jumpstart that, you know, that style of thinking and being able to do it in a timed environment, in a competitive environment. But I don't think that's necessarily the the most efficient way to get there. I would say, and I have said to some of my students who have graduated from high school and have gone on to college thinking that they're going to go to law school, that at the very least, take one or two semesters of some sort of formal logic class. Because just having that basic understanding of how I can take a verbal argument and represent it symbolically, how I can do a contrapositive. I mean, these are, I mean, you you do a good job of teaching that in the various videos that are part of our core curriculum. But I mean, that's the core skill ultimately that almost all of the LSAT is based on. So if you're able to do that, you've learned that not just in some sort of crash course in preparation for an exam, but over the course of a semester or two under the guidance of a professor who's an expert. I don't know why you wouldn't take that opportunity if it was available to you university and almost every every school has that built into it you can you can find those courses in almost any college i would say the other thing that really helped me though is i majored in philosophy where when people ask me what that was like because a lot, a lot of people never take a philosophy class to kind of compare and contrast it with history in history you'll be given a major historical event or a historical text and often you'll be asked to wax poetic about why it's such an amazing text or why it's important or compare and contrast this text to another one in philosophy you're given the same text and you're told to find out what's wrong with it so here's one of the greatest thinkers who's ever lived. Tell me why he's an idiot. And I think that's phenomenal practice if you know that not only you're going to be doing that on the LSAT, but also if you're going to go into the legal profession, presumably you're going to be doing a lot of that over the course of your life. So I think philosophy, I think, is certainly excellent training for me taking the LSAT and also for coaching a competitive date and a lot of the things that I've done in my life. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I also remember studying the philosophy classes I took in undergrad were just really spot on when it came time to take the LSAT. I you know, took philosophy because I found philosophy interesting. It's not because I knew I was going to go to law school, but when the time came to take the LSAT, and again, I had similar realizations as you in the logical reasoning section. I'm like, oh, but argument analysis is like what I've been doing for many semesters. Basically, every one of the philosophy classes has homework assignment is, is to take apart arguments, right? Here's an argument that some Eminem philosopher made some hundreds of years ago. What's like, what's wrong with it? What assumptions did the person make, right? Are those assumptions reasonable? What are some counter arguments? So that was a really transferable set of skills gained from those undergraduate classes that then be applied to the LSAT. Philosophy was an excellent preparation for pretty much everything I've done since I got out, except for paying off college loans. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, it helps you get into law school. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, the, the, there, there is that narrow route, right? Yeah, Although, and I would just generally yeah. encourage you, certainly if you know, any of the people listening to this are not, it doesn't necessarily help you if you know you're taking the LSAT in a month or two. But if you're an undergrad and who's looking forward to doing this in a couple of years, you know, certainly go ahead and lay some of that groundwork now. It won't just pay off for taking this one test, but it'll also pay off for the entire profession that you're hoping to enter. At least I hope so. Yeah, actually in law school, a lot of it, what you do is analyze, you're not analyzing eminent philosophers' arguments, you're, you're analyzing eminent jurists' arguments. This job or that judge, their opinion, and you're supposed to like, well, first you have to understand what their opinion is, which is just an argument. They lay out some premises, they arrive at a legal conclusion. So the underlying reasoning works just the same. And you're just, you're having to engage with that in a much less restricted, like the LSAT really narrowly prescribes the boundaries of what you're allowed to talk about. I just want you to tell me what the assumption this argument has made is, right? Don't talk about anything adjacent to it. That's a way to like kind of isolate and single out and test 
these particular skills. But of course, all these skills come together and they have to be synthesized in order for you to have a conversation about a broader argument, which is what you tend to do in law school. So it's still really helpful. The LSAT is sort of, you know, kind of a proxy for your ability to do that. If you were to take philosophy on undergrad, that also is honing your skill set. Absolutely. And, you know, I would also say with RC, though, you know, I don't think it's necessarily philosophy particularly that, that helps with RC, though it certainly, I think, was beneficial to me. But, you know, studying something where you're constantly reading and reading quickly. I think that helps immensely in preparation for RC. You know, we, we do work with students in our tutoring program who are just barely at the reading level where they can kind of get through that material in an expedient way. And there are all sorts of shortcuts that we can teach and low res summaries of each paragraph. And we can help them get much more efficient and use their time well. But there's no shortcut to improving your reading level. So I would definitely encourage anyone who's looking at this a couple of years out, make sure that you're spending some time seriously reading on a daily basis and reading high-level material that's challenging to you. Again, that pays dividends off on the LSAT. And I think one of the reasons I did well on RC for the most part was I could always finish the sections with five or six minutes left because I read the passages quickly. And certainly that, that's just necessarily going to lead to me making a higher score than someone who is barely able to read the passages and answer all the questions in the 35 minutes provided. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so sounds like your LR and RC were pretty solid, even just from the get-go. And we talked about some of the reasons why that was. So you really just had to close the gap in LG. That was more or less where those 12 points from a 168 to 180. I definitely improved a lot in consistency in LR and RC and just understanding that the LSAT is really good at punishing certain mistakes in your thinking or in your reading comprehension. And learning how the LSAT does that, I actually think did improve my reasoning abilities too. I mean, it, it, it does kind of shape your brain a little bit too. I, I realized there were certain areas in identifying flaws and arguments where I had gotten sloppy over the years. And, and, and initially, I got really punished very, very aggressively for that. But but really, most of my gains were on LG. I, and I'd have to go back and look at my exact statistics. But on all the practices I took, I got, I think my worst score on LG was minus 15. Suffice to say, I did not get a 168 on that particular test. I think even on my initial taking one of the really old ones for a diagnostic, you know, I was a minus eight. So pretty much all of my gains were coming in off of the back of LG. And it, it was a it was a slow and ponderous climb on that. This is where the shameless plug where this, you know, and that's when I signed up for Seven Sage and it really helped me. It got me that 180. It, all joking aside, uh, or at least most joking aside, it really was very helpful in that. I just giving me a study strategy that helped me crack that not was really the thing that I needed because it was not like studying for anything else because it wasn't and I think this is true just generally about the LSAT but especially it felt like that for logic games that it wasn't about me just knowing a certain amount of information and cramming it in my head I had done that all the way through college and that's what I thought studying was but it was training myself to perform a task and to perform it quickly and efficiently and reliably and it's a skills test more than it is a knowledge test and I hadn't had to prep for a test like that I think probably ever. So just having a clear, and I did a kind of modified version of the of the foolproofing that you recommend on the site, but just getting into the habit of doing that, understanding why I had made the mistakes I made, going back and, and redoing those games I had done poorly on until I'd ironed out all those mistakes. And that's ultimately what got me to where I eventually could get a minus zero on that section. Yeah, comfortably with like time to spare. On the day of, I finished, I got very lucky in June in that Logic Games was still my icky section. I mean, there were still occasional times when one game would throw me. I'd get a really nasty, sophisticated in-out game that, oh my goodness, I'd miss something up, right? I'd feel the difference. But even hearing you say that, I'm like, <laughs> the, the memory of it is like, it's just, it's so, it's so palpable, you know? You know, like when you start to hands start to get clammy, you're like, oh God, I know there's an inference here and I know I'm not seeing it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really scared that time's going to run out before I actually see it. And this is just not good. My mind has turned into slush. Well, exactly. <laughs> and, or, and for me, always the, the horrible question that would nag at me as I was getting you know, to the second or third question is, wait, should I have broken the board? Should I have broken the board more? Should I have done less? Should I break this board into 16 boards? <laughs> that seems, surely, surely I'm not supposed to do that. But it feels like I, it's that's sort of question and ultimately it's a judgment call there's not a hard and fast rule to it you just have to do enough that you just instinctively know but thankfully on june so that's of course what i'm sweating at. what if i get just a nasty lg section but luckily lg was first my understanding of it is that I got the easier form of the LG that was available on the June test. And so I got that out of the way. I finished it with five minutes to spare. You know, leisurely went back through, 
And from that point on, I, I just, this is golden. This couldn't have ended up any better. And from there, I, I knew I'd done well. Of course, I didn't have any idea how well I had done. My PT average going into the test was a 175. So I think I'd made a 180 once on a practice test. And it was about two days before the test. But it was back on like a one back in the 130s or something. Where I just, you know, it was almost like cute. It was like, oh, well, yeah, those 131 are really hard. The RC is the super easy. And the game oh, like, like in the 30s, the PTs in the 30s. Yeah, the PT was in the 30s. Like the, I had never made a, I'd never made higher than a, maybe a 177 on one of the more recent. It's one of those things I will say north of 175. I wouldn't want to ascribe the whole thing to luck because it's not like it's a game of chance or something. But I mean, I think a lot of how well you perform above that has a lot to do with chance and how things go that day and which version of the test that you get and a lot of these little factors. Because at that level of performance, you have to get all of them right. Or you're talking about a difference of a minus one versus a minus three. If I'd gotten a different version of that test on that day, I very easily could have made four or five points lower than a 180. Certainly put in a lot of work to get that score, but I also recognize that there there was a lot of good luck in my corner as well that day. Yeah, but it still must feel really great to get the highest score you've ever gotten on an actual test. I mean, that's like the opposite of what most people experience. Yeah, I, I will say one of the things that has always been going forward me is that I've never had any test anxiety when it comes to standardized tests. I have anxiety after the test, the three weeks that I was waiting for that score. And we knew this, like my wife and I, it was our 15th anniversary right around that time. So we went to Hawaii, you know, so kind of a lavish vacation for two teachers. So you know, we took the time to go do that. And it, I'll be honest, I checked the score, even though I know it wasn't going to come out. You're, you're you know, on the beach. At least like every second you or third day. The phone. Yeah. Not, not, on, not on the beach, but certainly like my wife would go to sleep and I'd like, you know, pull up the phone. I'm like, did, did it come out? And I know it. I know it didn't because of course it's not, like they told us the day it's going to come out but I'm still just the craziest thing was when I actually looked it up that morning and I looked at it and I'm looking on a phone because I'm an idiot apparently and you know the formatting is just not quite right on an iPhone you know turned in portrait mode and I see the number 180 and my first thought is okay there's clearly my score and a slash and then the 180 and I just can't see what my actual score is and I'm so I'm like checking on multiple <laughs> different devices and I think it was the fourth device I checked it on before I realized oh Oh, no, that's my actual score. <laughs> yeah, that's not just the theoretical maximum. That's what you actually got. <laughs> you know, and that was just, what? <laughs> <laughs> my brother was, at, we were actually in town. My brother's an attorney as well. And he'd been teasing me the entire study process because he, he's two years younger than me. But he's now, because I'm 37, he's 35. He's been a practicing lawyer for, for the better part of a decade now. But so we were up in town with him, visiting him and his two girls. And he'd been having a lot of fun at my expense, but he didn't believe I got that score either. <laughs> It took him a couple of days. No, there's, there's got to be some sort of website glitch. There's no possible way you made that good. <laughs> it only took you just nine-ish weeks to get your LG up to where it was. You mentioned earlier that it, like you experienced tightening the variance, uh, like just being more consistent, in other words, with your performance. Yeah. And so to kind of unpack kind of what that nine weeks looked like, I started off using the, I keep wanting to say Kaplan, and I know that's the wrong company, but it was the Khan Academy, the stuff that LSAC provides for free. And I saw a little bit of progress. You know, I started learning the games and at least the different types of games, but I really kind of realized very quickly that one, that it's not actually giving me a time there. It has a really narrow subset of things that I can study and it just wasn't helping me. And so I eventually took a practice test where, you know, I dropped down to I think it was a 161. Oh, that was like your lowest prep test score? Yeah. And so I, you know, I dropped down seven points. And that's the moment I realized, okay, this thing isn't working for me. It's clearly not actually training me. And so I started researching the different companies that exist and who can help. And that's ultimately where I found Seven Sage. And that ended up being supremely helpful because it started, you know, I actually had access to all of the prep tests and the actual analytics where I could see essentially, hey, where am I wasting my time? Where, what are the Oh, the you actually took advantage of that. Like, like the yeah. timing report of like, yeah, that's great. I think it's, that's kind of hard for people to take advantage of but it's such a huge part of analytics where you get to see it's not it's not just about getting it right yeah of course you got to get it right but you also make sure you're not spending more time than you need to get it right because you got you, like time you got to save that time for other questions right that's that's how you do it you get you get it right and you get it right faster so that you have more time to spend on the other questions that's how you improve your overall score so that timing report is so super important for the decisions that you make about how to change your approach to the test the next round no i actually and i wish we emphasized that more and maybe there's some way we can with the ui but with the students that we use or that we get with else seven stage tutoring 
I mean, honestly, I spend most of my time looking at that rather than looking actually at the breakdown of question types. Not that that's not also useful, that we use that a ton, but you can diagnose so many problems by just seeing where they waste their time. Because, uh, you know, if you spend three minutes on one LR question only to get it wrong, well, heck, even if you get it right, but you spent three minutes to get one question right, you got three or four wrong because you should have been using that time elsewhere and then you rushed and all these sorts. So, I mean, that, that was invaluable. That, that was the thing. And I'm a spreadsheet sort of guy. I, I like everything laid out and I like to impose an order on things. I you know, made a special spreadsheet that gives me a trend line so I could see if I was improving or, <laughs> or not on each section. So just being able to see my performance in a really clear way, that was probably the most important thing for me improving my score. I, and ultimately, once I switched over to that, I realized, oh, well, what's happening to me is when I'm getting those low scores, I was doing poorly on logic games for various reasons. But the thing that really hit me and kind of freaked me out for a while is when I got into the PT-70s and the PT, especially the PT-80s, my RC score dropped off a cliff because those sections get, they're much longer. And particularly when you get into the 80s, the questions are much more exacting and much more punishing. And so you, just because I did well in the PTs in the 50s and the 60s, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to do well on the RC sections that are much more recent. And I feel like that's one of the sections where LSAC has really changed the most over the past few years to really just kind of hone in and punish bad reading habits. So I think improving on that section and realizing, and honestly, just realizing why I was doing bad. It's like, oh, hey, all of the ones I'm doing bad on are in the 70s or 80s. Okay, well, that tells me something. There's something happening in these sections. And so that's when I started going through the PTs in those year brackets where I could really figure out, okay, this is what's happening to me. I'm wasting time in these ways. I'm marking up the passage in ways that aren't going to help me at all and really hone down my efficiency and my performance. Nice. Yeah. I really like what you said earlier about like, actually both in LR and RC, the questions, if you get them wrong, they're just, they're kind of punishing certain aspects of how you reason. There are just right and wrong ways to reason. And if our psychology is such that a lot of our default modes of reasoning isn't right, it just leads us to the wrong conclusions. And the test is really, really good at almost like reading our minds and knowing like, I know you're going to make a mistake here. So let me put an answer choice, <laughs> like just waiting for you when you make that mistake. And then it punishes you. But I, I do, I also find that like, I still, whenever LSAC releases the test, and I, I still take them and I take them timed and I want to see how I do. And I often make mistakes. It is still, I mean, sort of rare still for me to get like a minus zero on any particular section. But it's really nice to see the questions you get wrong. Like you think about like why you got that wrong. You know, like I said, it reveals to you that, yeah, you just weren't thinking clearly about something. And then here's why. And I think seeing that exposed, seeing this weakness in the way that you reason exposed in this sort of, in this test format, I think it can be empowering because the underlying truth is that the weakness in the way that you reason was always there. The test was just exposing that to you. If the test didn't do it, then another situation can arise that also takes advantage of your vulnerabilities in reasoning. Those other situations might be when you're in class and you're asked to like sort of evaluate an argument or even in your career when you have to like come up with actual legal arguments to advocate for your client and then like your opponent and you know take advantage of the fact that you're not reasoning quite so clearly and i think for you like it's just pretty obvious because you coach debate that like that's what people do all the time that's like i'm sure that's what you tell your kids to do oh and that's why i mean i actually use lr questions in my debate class just as a warm-up activity now most of competitive debate is being able to quickly determine the flaw in your opponent's argument and exploit it and flaw lr questions are actually fantastic because they're hard especially for high school students i mean they're kind of gruelingly hard in some cases but you know i and i give them a limited time to answer it and it's 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 amazing how much better they get as a result of that in identifying the flaw in their opponent's arguments by just doing that in a timed fashion i don't think i've ever had taken a standardized test before that i think actually made me smarter as I prepared for it. Usually they're just kind of an, a knowledge check or something like that. But I actually think something improved in my brain in the course of taking the LSAT. I may have lost some part of my soul in the process as well. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's an open question whether it was worth it's the exchange. But <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, it does actually make you get better. Right, for sure. I, I will say the, the other thing it tends to punish, and this is something I talk a lot about with clients, is it punishes uncertainty. So not only do the question types punish certain flaws in the way that you process arguments or the way 
way that you read or comprehension style, but it also punishes your refusal to cut bait and move on. And so often when I work with clients, that's the main thing that we have to cover. You know, most of my clients are not shooting for a 180. Most of them are shooting for a 160 or 165 or 170 or 175. And so often they will spend, you know, two, three minutes on an LR question, for instance, only to ultimately get it wrong because it was just a really hard LR question and it was number 17 in the section. Well, again, that's one of the things that the LSAT punishes. It punishes you for you refusing to recognize that I'm not going to get this run wrong, admitting defeat and moving on to the next question. And if that's a personality type that you have, and I think a lot of people who are interested in the legal profession are those sorts of type A perfectionist overachievers who have that problem, man, is the LSAT going to exact its price for yeah, you? Yeah, they got that. your number. <laughs> that's you. <laughs> it's exactly, you know, they know lawyers pretty well and they know the sort of people who want to become lawyers. And yeah, that's a type that they were working. And so, and sometimes our sessions with our clients sometimes are, are really helping not only impact different ways that they reason poorly, but also just an almost some sort of low level therapy where we're just, okay, look, it's, it's okay to get this one wrong. You're shooting for a 186. It's, or not a 186, oh, sorry, 168. <laughs> I have actually met some of our clients who probably are shooting for a 186, but yeah, they're, they're, you're, you're shooting for a, for a 168. You can miss, you can miss, you know, eight or nine of these and it's okay, but let's pick which ones you miss rather than letting the test decide by having five easy ones that you just don't get to at the end because you decided that you know, this was going to be your white whale and dadgummit, you were going to, you were going to harpoon it no matter what it cost you. You know, you got to be able to let that go and you have to be able to recognize that in yourself. Yeah, that rings so true for me. I mean, I haven't personally tutored students in quite some time, but I remember not only is it kind of hard to convince students to go ahead and make that mental framework shift, it's like you can convince the student with a rational argument that like, look, it's just economics. What's scarce is your supply of time. Every single point is just a point. You got to buy the best deals out there. They don't all cost the same amount of time. So you got to make sure you're buying the best deals first. But then like to implement it, like you said, you're like low level therapy. <laughs> like you're, you're dealing with like emotions. You're dealing with self-doubt. You're dealing with, you know, this says something about me if I'm a quitter, if I let go. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, but you're strategically a quitter, which is a good thing because <laughs> over the course of a section, strategic quitting means you win. Actually, you get more points. So a lot of that is just psychological. Something I've done a lot in sessions to help students with that is because you know, certainly I'll use the, the the analytics on our website to kind of show them, well, you spend a lot of time here. But with a lot of my clients, the thing I've really enjoyed doing is actually having them record themselves taking the test, just kind of screen cap it because it's all online anyway now. And then I'll actually play back the tape. OK, instead of just showing them, OK, you, you spent three minutes on question 18. No, let's pull up question. Yeah, let's, let's watch what you were doing. How, how did you spend those three minutes? Like, what were you doing? <laughs> And I remember with one client, yeah, we were clicking to, and the very first thing he does, almost before he could have possibly finished reading the prompt, his cursor moves over and he clicks the X on the right answer. Wow. And he spends the next three minutes already having ruled out the only oh, possible answer. That, and you know, so it's, it was a great learning experience for him to see that. And, to, and he knows what the right answer is now. He's, he's gone through, he's blind reviewed it. And just, you know, that, that was a great conversation. It wasn't necessarily me explaining, well, this is how this problem works. We did that too, but he already figured that out by the time we had our session. But really just the examine what's going on in your head in this moment that causes this mistake? Because the mistake's not so much the logic, it's the mistake is I'm refusing to let go and I'm refusing to move on. And once we got him out of that, I mean, that's that's one who just in, I guess, five weeks, he went from a 159 to a 166. And honestly, it wasn't because, I mean, he'd been studying the LSAT for a long time. He knew the information really, really well. I mean, he was kind of a, a probably top 10 presenter in terms of our incoming clients and just you're know, really getting the core concepts, but implementing them was the challenge. And that just did wonders for it. Really, we just kind of unkinked those few. Oh, okay, no, it's it's not about me answering everyone. It's about me answering enough to get my score. And it's okay to say, nope, this type of question, I'm going to flag it. I'm going to move on. I'm only going to answer it if I have time at the end, because I know I only get them right 20% of the time anyway. So why bother? No, to totally, totally. Yeah, I, I actually just did the uh, LSAT released uh, prep test. They rebranded, they used to call the May 2000 prep test with three sections. They now rebranded as the prep test 90. So what they did was they kept those three original sections and then they threw in an extra section of logical reasoning. So actually just earlier today, I took that section and I recorded it and I also recorded 
record that I do a screen record so I can go back and watch. And, you know, often on the site, what I do is I just I give a live commentary over it. And it's just it had been a while since I, I had done one of these things. And a lot of I guess I forgot and I had to kind of remember during the course of it what these like good habits were of taking the test and just being speedy about it. And one of the things was you just you have to have a rule for yourself that you follow for when to get out of question. It has to be very, very clear and detailed. Otherwise, you will just by default, you'll get sucked in. You'll just get sucked in. Like you don't understand the question. You're reading the stimulus over and over. You can't decide between two, three answers. So you're reading between those two, three answers. And then like you're going back to the stimulus, checking again. And then you, no, no, no. That's how you spend three minutes and not get a, or even spend three minutes, get a question right. And it doesn't even, it's still not a good use of time. But all of a sudden I remembered as I was doing this, I have a rule where I read a stimulus. If I don't get it at the end of it, I'll let myself read the stimulus again to try to get it. And then if I still don't get it on the second round, I'll let myself look at the answers because sometimes the answers do reveal what was what was missing. Not often, but sometimes they do. So I'll give myself a chance. But then if after those two steps, that's it. You got to fucking move on. And I was watching my own footage and I was pretty good about doing that. I made, I think I made one timing mistake towards the end. It was the last question where I was pretty sure I got the right answer. But I, because it was question 25 at the end of my round one, I still used a lot of time to like double check the wrong answers, B, C, D, and E, where I think that was, I think that was a mistake because what I should have done is I should have flagged that question 25 and then began my round two, right? And only come back to that question if I had time for round two. It turned out not to have matter because it turned out I had more than enough time anyway, but still, it was still a formal mistake. No, and I think one of the really tricky things about dealing with those mistakes, and I've gone back and taken a couple of practice tests just because if I'm going to tutor, I want to make sure that I'm reasonably sharp on it. And I found since the months since I actually took the real test, I haven't lost any of the actual knowledge of how logic works or how the LSAT works or these sorts of things. But what you can get out of the practice of is how to actually implement those timing strategies in an efficient way. I kind of likened it to the difference between knowing how to, in theory, throw a curveball versus actually having practiced enough hours that you reliably get it to go where you want it to. And if you get out of practice with it, you, I mean, even if you, you theoretically know, as I know you do, because mostly your videos are what taught me the timing issues, but it's easy to make those slip ups when you get out of the habit. And I think that's one thing, again, that we work a lot with clients with Seven Sage on is not just here in theory is the knowledge that needs to be in your head to do well in the LSAT, but let's put together a training program that's actually going to teach you to do that reliably. And it's going to keep you practice and hopefully get you peaking right around the time you take your test as opposed to a month before or a month after or whatever. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's just really, I think, not super obvious what the translation looks like from theory to practice. Even like you can, as you're listening to what I'm saying about this, you can even just adopt the rule that I, I said about if I read it once, I don't understand. I read it twice, I don't understand. Okay, then I look at the answer and move on. Like you can be like, okay, sure, I'll adopt this. But then like to actually adopt it, I think, you know, it's not obvious that you're just going to adopt it now that you've heard me say it. You're probably, I would bet more likely than not, you're probably just going to fall back to your whatever your old habits were. And then it does take a concerted effort of like either you yourself taping yourself, reviewing or working with somebody looking at it and like seeing you in the past not doing that and then being like, oh, right, what was I thinking? And then, you know, starting to attach like this is the moment that I should have implemented this thing. That's what I think is responsible for like transforming how you approach your testing in the, in the future. No, and I agree. I think something that makes it even harder is that those rules, there obviously are some rules that I think apply to everybody when it comes to the LSAT, and I would just be able to rattle off to anyone. But a lot of the really the timing specific rules are really going to depend upon you and your strengths on a certain test. They're, the rules I would make for JY are going to be different than the rules I make for my client who's you know at a 155 and gets wants to get to a 160. You know, For him, I might just say they're, they're entire question types that you just just ignore. You almost always get them wrong, and they're there are never enough of them on the test that you can't get the, your intended score. So why are we spending time on those? Being able to either work with someone or just being a really astute observer of your kind of own abilities and having a clear goal in terms of the score you're aiming to get. Coming up with those rules is, I think, a lot of the challenge in really preparing, especially the upper echelons of the LSAT. Totally. I guess knowing nothing about the student who's listening to this, do you have any sort of generic rules that you think apply to like, let's say, 60 to 70 percent of people just shot in the dark, see if it lands? Oh, absolutely. So in terms of timing, first, I'm amazed at how many students don't actually use the marking system. But absolutely, you should be marking difficult questions, both because that certainly helps you on your second pass, but also 
because there's something about the act of marking it that clues you into your brain that this is a hard one that I shouldn't be spending that much time on. There's something, it's just a mental trigger that you can do that, okay, once I do this, now I need to move on. Another thing that I'm surprised with our clients is often I'll see clients who they will go back and review questions before they get all the way through the end of a section. I especially see that on RC for some reason. I'll see a lot of people who will flag a question, they'll get to the end of the passage, and then they'll go back and check their flags. Or I'll see the same thing in, in logic games where they'll flag a hard question and they'll go back. No, go if you recognize it's hard, go ahead and go through and finish the entire section before coming back. Yes, it might be that you're not going to get that one, but by the time you're flagging it, you're already recognizing there's a good chance that you're not going to get it. And spending more time there is usually causes you to miss more at the end of the exam than you gain by spending that additional time. Yeah, that's that's a really good advice. I, th- I think if I can jump into the mind of someone who's uncomfortable doing that, I think the reasoning is that, oh, but, you know, Scott, I'm going to have a better chance of remembering what the content of, let's say I'm in passage three, of passage three is while I'm still in passage three, right? Like if I just flag question 16 and move on to passage four, I might forget what passage three is about. And the thing I would tell them is you're absolutely right. You are much more likely to get it wrong by going back to it while you're still in passage three. But the thing is, you're not very likely to get it right anyway. And what you're going to do by going back to it now is you're going to miss two questions in passage four that you're not going to have time for because you're rushing toward the end of the exam. It's hard for a certain type of person to give that up and to recognize, no, I'm willingly consigning this question to the void. I'm not going to, (laughs) I'm probably not going to get it right and I'm going to be okay with it because I have something that's helped with clients before is I talk, once we figure out what their ideal score is or their target score is, how many wrong answers can you get on this test and still get that target score and to treat that like a budget. Look, you're allowed to just say there's 10 or 15 or whatever questions on this test that you just, you're not going to get right and you're not going to care because you can not get them right and still get your target score. So not being too stingy with your budget of wrong answers, if you will, really can kind of help clients. Yeah, okay, that's all right. I'm just going to, that's going to be one I put on my bill and I'm going to move on and I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah, that's really good. That's exactly, I think that's exactly the right attitude if you are feeling like, oh, I can't move on from this because, you know, I'm right now, I'm still thinking about the rules of game too, right? So my chances are better getting this. But yeah, but you got to realize in like about 15 minutes, that version of you 15 minutes into the future, he or she is going to wish that you gave him or her some more time to do game four, because that person is going to be doing game four. That person is not going to be thinking about like question, you know, 13 on game three or whatever it is. So you want to help future you out by, by giving that person time to get their questions right. And something I went through with one client was he had spent, I think it was three minutes and 19 seconds on, I guess nobody can check me up if I'm wrong on this, but it was like number 14 on an LR section. And he got it right. It was a five-star, super hard question, but he managed to get it right. And then we went through the exam, but he, he did poorly on the section. And I actually brought him to that moment in the video. And I said, what's wrong here? And he watched it. He said, well, I got the right answer. Yeah, but you spent three minutes and 20 or three minutes and 20 seconds to get to the right answer. And that actually cost you. And then we went to the end where he's frantically trying to get through five questions, which he all gets wrong at the end. I said, you getting that one question right cost you three or four at the end. That was a bad deal. So actually, like, even if you get it right, which by the way, if it's that hard a question, you're probably not likely to get it right anyway. But even if you were to get it right, at what cost are you getting it right? Yeah, for sure. I I think another factor, psychological factor that obscures this truth is that, you know, causes sometimes are like separated from their effects by some significant amount of time, right? Like here, you might not realize the cause of you not doing so well in the last five questions was something that happened like 15 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago. It's not because of whatever you were thinking while you're doing that question. Yeah, I think that's the kind of stuff that you really need to either have somebody point that out to you or you need to be reflective enough to kind of see yourself and be able to objectively evaluate your past performance and just realize that that's, oh, that's that's actually what's happening. Well, I think one of the reasons that you getting high performance on these sort of tests is so difficult is because that level of introspection is just really hard for people to do. And I mean, obviously, this is where I'm going to plug yet. Please hire a tutor. (laughs) That's I I would love for you to do that. It, It is financially beneficial to me if you do. But even if you don't use one of our tutors or you can't afford to use a tutor at all, find someone else who can you know, look over your shoulder and help identify some of these things for you. Because even somebody, somebody who maybe isn't even as good at you at the LSAT might still be better at you at certain things or at least neurotic or less neurotic than you in certain ways. <laughs> 
or at least differently neurotic from you. In some yeah, yeah so differently neurotic, right? So, you know, they can point out, oh, well, you know, hey, you're you're sitting here spinning on this one question and just refusing to move on you know, because you've just decided that you're Custer and this is going to be your last stand. <laughs> like, no, move on. Move on. You, know, you can live to fight another day. And, and maybe you'll even be able to come back and when you're less stressed and less you know frantic. Because I think that's the other thing that happens. Most people who have any experience with the LSAT, they know when it gets to that two-minute mark on a question, this is bad. I shouldn't be here this long. And now you have that second stream of thought that's also competing with the part of your brain that's trying to figure out the answer. And once you kind of get to that dual track, as I sometimes tell clients, like when, once you've gotten to the point where you're thinking about how you're thinking about this. <laughs> you know, you're, you've got like two streams. One is like this nervous one that's saying, what am I doing here? And the other is actually trying to market move on. Because at that point, the, the chances of you actually getting that stupid thing right is almost zero. And you're much better to move on and hopefully get that you know, kind of neurotic you know, alternate persona out of your head for a little while and hopefully come back to it when that person has been appeased. Yeah, really good advice. So for those of you listening, one thing you should definitely start doing is using the flag function. I would say back up even before that, if you've never done it before, just run a screen recorder and actually record yourself taking the digital test. You don't have to do the whole thing. Just do one section and then see if you're actually using the flag function. If you're not, you should be using the flag function. And then just kind of watch, right? Like look at the timing report and watch yourself in conjunction with the timing report. Watch yourself doing the test and see where you're not optimally spending your time. And if you feel like this is something hard for you to be objective, about, then enlist the help of a tutor if you can afford one, or if not, just, you know, enlist the help of another student studying for the test. Just getting that sort of alternate perspective on it should be, might be illuminating. One of the other big issues that I see a lot is in RC, where we just have a number of clients who, when they first come to us, they just get really highlight or underline happy when it comes to marking <laughs> up passages. And so another thing, as you're recording yourself and looking through it, something I challenge my clients usually pretty early on as we start working into timing and addressing RC is to go back and actually look at all the stuff they highlighted or underlined and try to figure out how much of the stuff they underlined actually helped them on a question. I had a client one time that, you know, I was going through the video and on this one passage, he underlined, I think, two thirds of everything in the passage. And it turned out there was, I think, one sentence where the underlining actually helped him. And the fact that he underlined everything else actually just made everything, one, it just takes time to mark up the passage. But then also it makes it harder to go find the things that are actually important in the midst of all of that noise. But beyond that, I think the more pernicious part of it is that if you get into the habit of marking a lot in the passage, you end up reading the passage to find what to mark rather than reading the passage to understand the passage. And you get into habits there, you're not only killing yourself on time, but you're actually kind of messing with the fundamental way that you read in a helpful way. I had one client for like two PTs. I just, he'd gotten too underlined happy. And so I just made him go cold turkey. Sorry, you're not allowed to use the markup tool at all. You can do low res on your piece of paper and just kind of you know, make those notes. That's fine. And eventually we started reincorporating that because there is some helpful marking, but he kind of had to break himself of the habit of reading in that fashion so that he could just underline, you know, recognize here are the things that are really important. Here's a big turn in the passage. Here's the here's the some, something that clearly communicates the tone. I'm going to want to look at that later. Those there are a couple of those things that they're really worth marking. Right, right, right. Sometimes like a super long paragraph, you might actually want to break it up into like two chunks or three chunks. So, I mean, I think that's probably the biggest sin I tend to see on RC is just, I mean, the, the underline tool just tend, tends to be dreadful. A little bit recently as well, I've seen people overuse the control F search function, which admittedly is helpful. Like I used it on the actual test, but it's not as helpful as people tend to think it is. It feels nice to do because it feels like this cheat that not everybody knows that you're allowed to do. And so I'm going to try to use it. But part of the reason they let you use it is because they know it's not very helpful. <laughs> like maybe I think there's one question on my, yeah, on my June test that Okay, no, like actually doing the search function actually helped me, but all of the rest of it, it would have been complete garbage. And again, it tends to be a time sink. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, with every technique, there you got an over-under problem. I'm sure that there's some optimal amount of using that search function. And when you, when any particular person uses it, you're probably going to either be underusing it or overusing it. It's hard to like sort of know where that balance is. And I think it makes sense to me that when people first find out about it, they're going to make the overuse error, which ends up wasting time, ends up like distracting you from thinking about 
about the things you should be thinking about. But yeah, I actually haven't used that yet. <laughs> I did. I, I, I mean, I, I know it's a thing. I see it on the forums a lot. I know you can do it. And I've been meaning to, but I, I feel like I, I probably just end up forgetting to use it. So I'm probably like underusing it, but I'll try to use it when I take the, I still have to take prep test 91 and 92, which LSAC released to us recently. My experience was in studying, because I found out pretty early on in my studying that that was going to be an option for me to test. So I, I luckily got to train with it. But I found that it was more useful in the early numbered practice tests. But as you start getting into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the frequency of questions that are just a seek and find really, really drops off. Oh, like the ones where, oh, they mentioned four of the five things were mentioned about like deep oil well drilling. And these are all like jargon. And you're just like, oh, great. Now let me just do a quick search and find if I can find the highlights. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and understandably, because they've known they're, especially in the most recent ones that they know they're going to an electronic format. And it's just, but also I, I think they just realized those are just mostly time wasting rather than actual comprehension checking questions. And they've gotten better at asking questions. I'll say to talk about other frequent time sinks, uh, we've talked about. LR and RC, but in logic games. Of course, I would say as someone who really did, the section I struggled most with was logic games by far. Pretty much my LSAT journey was coming to terms with not sucking at that particular section. And I really think the key question that makes the difference between people who are good at the logic game section and the people who aren't, other than obviously making inferences, is figuring out when you need to break boards and how much to break them. And that is the hardest skill. And it's the one that just will absolutely kill you if you're bad at. If you're someone who tends to obsessively break boards, I mean, that that is just going to murder your time on that section. And that was my problem initially. I, you know, I, I remember one practice test I was really bad on. I think I had broken it down to like 20 boards on one question. It was some... Not live. You weren't doing this live, were you? It was on a time section. It wasn't on no. the actual... <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> this is why I sucked at it, JY. <laughs> I know that now. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, obviously, obviously what I really needed was to express, and I think this was the kind of key realization was that there are a lot of useful tools, and I learned a lot of them from watching your videos, of how I can express three or four different boards in one actual board just by marking it in certain ways. So knowing the symbology and things like that, but also just knowing, hey, here's when I need to break a board. And I think that can be the other extreme. And I, I flipped to that at some point where I just I would just never break boards. Well, then that was a nightmare because sometimes you really do need to. It's a huge time saver. So I think it defies really strong rules of like, yeah, always break boards in this case. I mean, there are some. I'm sure we can, we can break them. But being able to do that more or less instinctually, realizing, Oh, right. They designed this question for me to break a board. And here's the obvious place that they're wanting me to break it. Getting to where you can read the author's minds, if you will. That was the moment where I actually I got logic games where I could get a minus zero. Yeah, I think for training yourself, for training your instinct on when to break into sub game boards, like I remember for a while what I was doing is like whenever I finish a game, like whether or not I actually needed to, you know, some games you figure out one major inference and then the rest of the question just kind of fall out of that and you don't really need to break it out. Other games, you know, and for those games, maybe if you actually were to map it out into the possible worlds, you end up getting like 50, 50 possible worlds. Okay, maybe some of them you can represent, maybe like, okay, three of them can be represented on one board, but you still ended up getting, I don't know, like 20 boards. But I do remember for a while, what I was doing was I was forcing myself for every single game, no matter what, to just break it all down to see all of the possible worlds. I just really wanted to get a sense of like, how big is the universe here for this game? And you do this and you realize that like, you know, the, the maximum, you know, the does get into like the 50s, 60s, but so it was quite, quite large, like lots of worlds. So you definitely cannot just take the simplistic approach of like, I'm going to figure out all the sub game boards for every single game. No, definitely not. But forcing yourself to do that, I mean, at least for me, it was kind of a way to be a bit more tuned in to like when I can do it and when I can't do it. I start to get a sense of like, if I go down this path, I think there's going to be which is way too many worlds waiting for me. I, I don't know if that's a good idea versus like, oh, I think this is a game where I think it's quite limited. It's quite restricted. I can probably see it map it all out from the get go. Yeah, that would be a really good exercise. I imagine that would help you identify the difference between here's a 60 possible worlds game versus here's a six and breaking the boards in a six really does make sense and doing the opposite doesn't. Yeah, even when you start to develop a sense of like, oh, this is not, I shouldn't be breaking this, right? But it's this like ineffable intuition that you have. Okay, fine. Like, you know, go with it live, right? When the clock is ticking, fine. Like when you're done, but you're reviewing this, break it out anyway. Just do it. Just get out a bunch of paper and just like do it. And then you'll, you'll really get 
in touch with that ineffable intuition. Like, oh, here's why. This is why. Because this rule does this. And then this rule has these five variations. And then each one has whatever. And then you'd be like, yeah, I mean, I knew it. I definitely knew it. That's why I didn't do it when the clock was ticking. But now that I've done it, I can really see why it's such a bad idea. And I'm glad I didn't do it. So you start understanding better what makes for the right decision. I think the other thing that I got good at near the end when I was kind of at at my peak right before the exam was also recognizing, looking at the questions that it was asking, especially after that first initial question and questions two and three, you can often realize, okay, the very nature of this question presupposes that I have broken the boards because the task of figuring out otherwise is fundamentally impossible. And it's one of the few places where you can kind of, you can start to recognize those question types and identify them and realize if you didn't break the boards, okay, wait, if they're asking me these two quarter questions, they clearly expected me to break. So let me go back and review my inferences. And often that would be when I realize, oh, well, no, there's an inference I missed and that limits my possible worlds from 29 to eight. And so now I can really do this. And so you can kind of find ways to game that. I'll also say that I think there's a psychological thing that happens with breaking boards. Maybe this will be helpful to someone who's listening to this. That often when we're you know first encountering the game, there can be that moment of panic of, I don't really get this, or I feel like I'm missing something. I don't have all the inferences. And so breaking boards, it's nervous activity. It's like I'm doing something that feels productive. Yeah. And yeah. Even, though it's, even though it's probably a bad idea, even though you might recognize it's a bad idea, it's doing something. And yeah, it's a comfort blanket. It's, it's a fidget toy, right, but right. for the LSAT. And, but ultimately not one that's going to lead to you getting more answers right. Right. Yeah. It, it should be an intentional decision. It should be a strategic decision. Like this it makes sense for me to break into sub, sub worlds here. Well, Scott, this has been super helpful. This is super, super enlightening listening to you talk about your strategies. And especially, I think, from the other side as a tutor, seeing and categorizing and trying to fix the issues that your students encounter. I think maybe the last question I want to ask is, where are you going to law school with, with your 180? <laughs> Man, I, if I knew the answer to that, then... <laughs> my, my wife keeps asking me the same thing. When I, go home at night. I ultimately don't know. I applied to 15 different schools total. So pretty much the entire T14, except for a couple of the California schools because of the cost of living there. And then I also added two Texas schools because that's currently where I live that are outside of the T14. Everyone keeps saying this is going to be a long, slow cycle. And that's certainly how I found it. I've gotten, I've gotten one back from the kind of lowest ranked school on my list. It was a bit of a safety for me. And I admittedly did get a full ride there. So that was exciting. And that kind of, that was the moment my wife and I realized, yeah, that we're actually doing this. I'm going to be real. my current job. Yeah. We're going to be yeah. moving because even though it's the lowest rank of my choices, it's, it's better than what we're doing now. It's something that we're willing to pursue. But yeah, so I actually don't know where I'm going to live. And that's a really weird thought that I'm going to be living in nine months in a place where I don't actually know where it is. That's never been true in my life up to now. So as someone who has a wife and also a, a son who's eight years old, that's learning to live with that uncertainty has been kind of a novel experience for us. But at the same time, I think, you know, thankfully, I have an incredibly supportive wife who is excited to, you know, the prospect of this big adventure, her career, she's in special education, which thankfully is incredibly portable. Uh, and she's, you know, kind of looking forward to the opportunity to go in and apply her trade someplace else. My son doesn't know about any of this yet, because explaining to an eight-year-old when you don't have a clear destination in mind is just something that he's going to be complaining to his therapist about for 20 years. Oh, <laughs> so you know, let's give him six months of uncertainty. That'll be great for him. <laughs> well, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Uh, uh, no, he, I will tell you, he does not listen to this podcast. He, you know, again, he, he's eight. It's more, you know, Octonauts and Pokemon <laughs> at this age, thankfully. But I, I guess I will have to make sure that if I listen to it, I don't do it while he's in the car. Well, Scott, I'm, I'm really excited for you. I'm, I can't wait to find out where you get in and where you're going to end up going. And it's, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Well, likewise, I, you know, I haven't gotten a chance to, to talk at this length with you. And I, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed the experience. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to Scott as much as I did speaking with him. And I hope you got some good advice that you can implement in your own studies. If you are thinking about working with a tutor, get in touch. We'll do a free consultation. You can reach us on sevensage.com. Oh, and a quick update. Since we recorded the conversation, Scott has gotten into Cornell. Congratulations, Scott. I'm sure many more acceptances will soon follow. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.